I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. This is Trevor Cummings, your host of the Thoughts on Money podcast, and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. We are recording not in our normal studio. We are in an office here with Mr. Brian Tong, as Mr. David Bonson is doing... um, some special things that he will release soon, um, some exciting things. But uh, I'm here with my good colleague and good friend, none other than Mr. Sean Latimer. Hello, hello. Yes, David gets priority. <laughs> David absolutely gets priority. Um, so we're going to talk about an article I wrote called Timing is... Everything. Timing is everything. <laughs> um, so one thing I didn't include the article when I was thinking about timing is everything, because, I mean, I feel like every article should have something to do with basketball. Yeah, or some sport. Yeah. And you hear it in basketball a lot of times, like you look at the stat line and you're like, oh, he scored a bunch of points, but it was in junk time. They were going to lose mm-hmm. anyway or whatever. And I was thinking about what an interesting metric in uh, basketball, that metric that's called clutch, is that how do you perform when the timing is really important? Right. Yeah. And even just momentum of the game, you know, points in the first and second quarter are important. But if someone really turns it on five minutes left in the game or the end of the game. That's what matters. Yeah, basketball reminds me so much if you watch the Olympics, like kind of like maybe the the mile racers or something like in track and field is like they all kind of pace with each other. Like that's what it is, right? Yeah. First, second, and third quarter, you just got to stay in the game and then everyone sprints in the last three minutes. I know this has nothing to do with it, but that's got to be the worst feeling if you're like really pushing yourself and you know the person next to you is just like, saving it you know yeah they got end. all the yeah. endurance left <laughs> i wonder that would be an interesting uh statistic or thing to look at like if you look at m- people who race the mile right mm. um like how often does the person who's in first in the first lap actually win the event i bet it's not often isn't that like strategy they wait till like the halfway point before they yeah uh, who knows yeah anyway so this idea of timing is everything um it's it's a mishmash a hodgepodge of different topics when it comes to investing but i think that there's so many concepts of where timing intersects with investing that i think can be uh detrimental to investors and also sometimes it's just misconceptions so i ran through four different ideas of where timing and investing intersect uh what i called entry points holding periods, uh, measurement timeframes, and and market timing. So we'll kind of go one by one, but just kind of maybe an an overview. Is there anything that stuck out to you or kind of what was top of mind when you started reading this? And I say this because I know you have so many client conversations every day and you sit in a unique position that you are talking to investors every single day. So you have a really good pulse on kind of what's going on with investors. Yeah, it's kind of a different spin on timing, but uh, it really comes down to the purpose of the money, and that'll dictate what it's invested in, and then that kind of decide it determines the time horizon for that money. There's there's so many times where people say, "Hey, I'm selling a piece of property or whatever it might be, and and um, I want to invest this money for a period of time," and then I'll kind of ask, "What do you mean a period of time?" And they'll say, "Oh, well, I need it in three years or eighteen months for." my daughter's wedding or I'm helping them buy a house. And my the first thought in my head is, well, then you shouldn't invest it if you already have it earmarked for something. And uh, I think it gets tricky because then people go, well, what if it's for six years? And they try to pick like a certain time frame that like, well, then that's enough to get a return, right? Well, no, not necessarily. 
So, and when you're saying it shouldn't be invested, you're referring to it should be invested in stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Cause right. And, and because there are other instruments you can invest in, maybe you could find, you know, treasuries or something short term that gives you some sort of interest, which is a different conversation. But the way I read your article is we're talking about equities or stocks. Yeah. So let's start there. Cause you're kind of leading into one of those points that I made on, on holding periods. So you're bringing up that. So I got an email yesterday. Um, uh, a client reached out and said, Hey, it looks like markets are kind of thrown up a little bit for some clients. Like that makes for attractive entry points. Right. Yeah. Um, and his thing was, Hey, I have a project I'm going to do kind of two years from now. Uh, but it seems like there could be some opportunities. So what stocks should I be buying? And uh, I'll let you, I mean, what do you think my response was? Oh, I'm like looking at my chops because I'm thinking like, oh, what kind of project? You, so you need the money for this project, right? So what happens if you can't do the project because stocks kept going down? So I, I would absolutely tell him it's a non-starter. Yeah, and I think that's where it's just not really natural for us as human beings to lean into probabilities so like where, where I went, and it was helpful for me because I didn't know this statistic off the top of my head. I was super curious. Like, let's say I had a project earmarked in five years from now, which mm. feels like a, to me, that feels like a long time, right? Yeah. So I looked at the last 50 years and I looked at five-year rolling periods, which is any five-year period you could grab out of those 50 years. Um, how often was the market negative? for, you know, where you had less money at the end of five years. Um, and how often is it less than what the current five-year treasury pays, right? So I looked at five-year treasuries, you get like 2.8%. So in those five-year rolling periods, how often is it less than 2.8%? Um, and it was almost 25% of the time, which I'm like, those are, I guess those are good odds, right? Because three yeah, quarters of the times it's in your favor. But uh, to me, if we talk about risk, that is a risk. That is a risk that one out of four times, uh, it would have been better for me to just park my money for a five-year project, something earmarked in five years mm-hmm. um, in a five-year treasury. And 15% of the time is actually negative. And the problem is that I think is that the times that it was negative, I didn't mention this in the article, but you had to uh, to steal from our cryptocurrency friends, hold on for dear life to get that small negative outcome. Because if it was negative 1%, that means somewhere in those five years... There was a big correction. There's a big correction. And you would have had to just take it. It was a 30 or 40% drawdown, and yeah. you had to just endure it. So it wasn't about like, okay, you know, I lost 1% or 2%. No, you had to muscle through believing that by the time that finish line came up, you were going to kind of be back at break even. That's such a good point, because my first thought too was... Well, you need to be, it's really liquidity. That's, that's the enemy because if it goes down, you're thinking, okay, well, I don't want to sell these stocks now. They're down 30%. But if you need the money for the project and you don't have another place to go, that's the issue. Um, it's kind of like you hear stories of 2008 where people say, oh, I, you know, I lost half of everything in the market. And you, and you kind of pull on that thread and ask why or how. And then you find out it's because they lost their job, unfortunately. And then they needed to take all their money out of their IRA at the worst possible time. And, th- and then that tells the rest of the story. It's how you had to sell equities at the bottom to fund your lifestyle because you needed liquidity. Uh, But you brought up a good point that that's just the uh, need for money. That's not the human behavior part that, hey, my portfolio is worth half. I don't I'm not comfortable. I'm I'm getting out. And that's hard to hold on along the way. I try to think of what's that show where there's uh, it's a game show 
and there's all the briefcases. Oh, a deal it, or no deal? Deal or no deal? Okay, that's the one. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like that one is a, a, a good example of kind of where my mind's going because Howie, I think it's, is it Howie Mandel? Yeah, yeah, yeah So yeah. he comes to and he's like, uh, who are, like the banker or whatever he calls he's the He's like guy. the middleman. Yeah, he's, he's like, like you, sure? you could take this <laughs> yeah. or you could take the mystery, you know what I mean, of, of what you, you might get. And um, uh, as the probabilities change, that number might go up or down. And I think... Me and Dea talked about this on a podcast a few weeks ago. I think people just naturally kind of like gambling, even though they don't say that. So like when somebody comes to me and they say, yeah, I'm going to use this money for, like you said, college, wedding, new house in three years. Like my immediate response is like, okay, perfect. Let me look up. Okay, three-year treasury is X. And they're like, oh, that's so boring. Yeah. And they're like, like, like this this fantasy of what it could be. Um, They almost want that that mystery outcome. I almost have to be kind of like, not mean, because I don't think I'm mean to people, but I have to be kind of blunt when they're like, hey, I've got this money for, you know, my daughter's wedding in two years. Let's say it's a big number, right? And, uh, but I'm thinking I should invest it. And if I could get a quick 10%, that'd be great. And I'm like, or it goes down 30 or 40,000, you can't pay for your daughter's wedding. I have to be very like obvious. They're like, no, don't play that game. It's not worth it. And that's funny because I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the right way to say it, but I don't know why the other option isn't attractive. Like where you can actually define your interest rate right. and what your rate of return the, is. That briefcase is you're gonna, you know, have a tre- one year treasury or two year treasury, get some interest. That's better. Well, I almost said better than inflation. We'll see. Yeah. And then and then be able to pay for the wedding and you're the hero. Yeah. Or the other option. Oh, my foolish dad tried to be greedy and did something wrong. You know. Yeah, so it brings us back to, so if somebody asks us uh, for investment advice, we're going to tell them timing is everything. Mm-hmm. What is your holding period? Um, that leads me to kind of the other part where I introed the article. I had a fun conversation, uh, which is outside of my scope of expertise, but a client was asking about some of these leveraged products, right? They get a lot of... Um, uh, Coverage? Yeah, they get a lot of coverage. They get a lot of interest, curiosity, yeah. whatever. When they're uh, winning. Yeah, when they're winning. Or so, actually when they blow up too. People are like, what is this thing? <laughs> yeah, which we know some. Some of those volatility strategies actually did blow up. But his main question was, um, you know, I, I'm reading this generally and this thing looks like um, it's going to give me an outcome that's two times the market. And I don't really, this is kind of his posture. If I don't care about volatility, um, why wouldn't I always take the 2x option? Mm-hmm. So then uh, there's some truth here that I kind of had to unpack. Well, hey, look at the fine print. It'll tell you that these are really only meant for daily use. Um, And when you go 2x, that compounding can go against you because the underlying assets inside of those leverage strategies are derivatives, Mm -hmm. futures, options, things like that. I mentioned in the article, Warren Buffett once called derivatives uh, uh, financial tools of mass destruction or, or something like that. It's in uh, weapons of mass destruction. Um, but what I wanted to look at for him to understand kind of what he wanted to look at, what is worst case scenario? Do some of these things go to zero? Some of them have, right? Some of those volatility strategies yeah. cease to exist. But we zoomed in on something that I thought was pretty finite. We did it on the spot. But I knew what oil prices did during that COVID moment where some of those futures contracts like actually went to zero or negative. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what some of those leverage strategies look like, but I was like, Hey, let's check out 
two times leveraged oil. And let's look at it in two different time frames. Let's look at it over the last five years because you'll catch capture that COVID moment. And then let's look at it year to date. And it was the tale of two stories, right? I looked at it at the one year period. So if you bought it five years ago, you're down 98%. To, today. As of today? As of today. If you bought it one year ago, you're up 120%. And I put the two charts and I was like, isn't that timing is everything? Your entry points matter so much when it comes to investing. Oh, geez. It's like what you talked about too. Um, this is a little off topic, but like percentages are deceiving because you think like, oh, something lost 80 or 60 or 70 or 80% of value. It must be a good deal. No, it can go down another 60 or 70%, which is kind of scary to think about. Yeah, that was one thing we joked around about him and I. We were like, how, how, how many times can you cut something in half? Infinity. Yeah. Like you can, you can cut something in half infinity and, and technically from a math standpoint, never get to zero. Right. You can keep uh, cutting in half. Um, so yeah, that's the point that your, your entry point, which is this concept of timing, it matters a lot because there will be one investor that treasure the same position that you might look at as trash in your portfolio yeah. because of the times that you bought it. So Okay, that's interesting, Trevor, but what does it mean to me as an investor? Well, I'll tell you here at the Bonsa Group, we put a lot of energy into understanding valuation, Mm -hmm. right? Why? Because we want to understand what we're paying for. We believe that stock prices are the net present value of future cash flows. So we want to get attractive entry points because we understand the math that you just touched on that if the largest streaming company in the whole world goes down 70%, you have to get really large returns just to get back to break even. And yes, you listen to this podcast and you talk finance, you've heard this a million times before, but if you have an investment that goes down 50%, you need it to go up 100% from there to get back to break even. Mm -hmm. How does that math work, Trevor? If I take $100 and I turn it into 50 to get back to 100, I need a 100% rate of return. Yep. So that's the problem when you get bad entry points because you don't care about valuation as you get markets that can stand or water for a really long time. What do you say to people when they say like, that makes perfect sense? So shouldn't I hold cash and wait for, we always say that a correction is uh, uh, inevitable, right? A big correction eventually. Shouldn't I just wait, whether even if it's a year or two or three, and have that cash and get a better entry point? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, So you're asking what would be my answer? I know it depends on the circumstance, but let's say someone's looking for a long-term investment. They're okay with volatility, kind of like your friend who was asking about leveraged products. And he's saying, hey, I think that there's going to be a correction in the next one, two, or three years. I know there's going to be opportunity costs in the meantime, but I feel like this person thinks they can get a better entry point. Wait, do you get that question ever? Or? Yeah, so I think that kind of leads us to another section that I wrote here called market timing. Now, I want to be careful the way that I answer your question. I actually don't disagree with that in theory or philosophy. I'm going to tell you something I think is wrong with it. The problem with it is I don't think people are really good at executing it the way that you're talking about. Mm. When something goes down 20%, there's a fear that it's going to go down 40%. So the reason something's down 20 or 40% is because the majority of people 
are selling, which means the majority of people don't have a lot of faith that whatever it is, is coming back to where it was before. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. So maybe they wait that the execution part. So it goes down to 20. They say, oh, it's going to go more. Then it recovers to 10. Well, let's say it's down 10 and then they invest. Then you weigh the opportunity cost of not being in the market for three or four years, just to have a 10% difference entry point. Is that kind of what you're saying? Kind of. So let's zoom in a little bit more. So what, I, what I'm saying is that you have that posture, you have that attitude in theory. We're at coffee. You talk about that. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Then COVID happens. Market's down 36%. You're like, there's no way I'm investing. <laughs> yeah. The world is ending. Did you call me and ask if I backed up the Brings truck? And I go, no way. <laughs> I'm sitting in my checking account. Yeah, yeah, the world is ending. This isn't the type of entry point that I wanted. I just wanted something to go on sale and it would be really easy. It's not easy. The other point that I'll bring up, and so I, I can't really speak to this statistically, but like if you looked at a, a chart of, of you know, stock performance over 20 years, what you're going to see is that some price points will never, I shouldn't say never, but they're not going to be hit again. So like say something was worth uh, $100 and you have cash and you could buy it now and you think it's expensive. I'm just making that up. Yeah. So then it goes to $200 and then it goes at $200, it goes down uh, 30%. You're now You're buying in 140. at 140. Yeah. So wouldn't it have been better to just own it at 100? Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Is there's a lot of uh, hard parts in there. One, um, you don't know how long you'll have to wait. And then that's the hardest part. The longer you wait, the more you get like, Antsy FOMO. FOMO yeah. yeah. And then like a little tiny correction happens and you're like, all in. This is it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's difficult. But that goes to my last point that I wrote about. It's, it's the shortest section in here and it was called market timing. And I said, hey, let's make it really simple. If you're reading this, I'm writing it. You and I have something in common. We both stink at market timing. But for some reason, every once in a while, myself included, we're going to think, I'm going to dabble. Yeah. And what I'm trying to tell people is don't dabble because like there's so many times that somebody will tell me this, like you just told me, this theory or this idea and they break it down for me and I'm always like, okay, I'm digesting it. There's a lot of moving parts, but isn't that market timing? And they always say, yeah, yeah, but. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just kind of saying like, hey, no, yeah, buts. Like, let's just make it really easy. Let's agree that we're not going to try to time markets. Makes sense. I think that the, the longer markets stay friendly, and I say friendly broad terms. I know 2020 was volatile year, and the start of this year has been volatile. But the longer the, I guess, bull market continues, the more that question comes up. Because then they're like, okay, now something's going to happen, which may or may not be the case, at least in one or two or three years. But uh, I think that uh, for listeners, that's probably going to be the conversation at coffee more often. So just be aware. Yeah. And we have, um, I don't know the right way to say it, but our philosophy or strategy is friendly to this idea because we're saying, Hey, we're building a portfolio. We know total return is the summation of income and appreciation. And you're right. Your entry point probably won't be perfect because none of us has perfect market timing, but you are getting paid along the way in the income production, mm -hmm. which to me, I would argue that it should help you to be a little bit more patient. 
Yeah, absolutely. If we see another period of time where markets are flat for a long period of time, it's really easy to know that you've been either reinvesting into more shares along the way or spending the income on your lifestyle and not really worrying about what your statement says. Yeah, I met with a real estate investor the other day, and I think that's the easiest person to talk to because it's so relatable. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, do you collect rents? Of course. Do you like to kind of increase those rents over time? Yeah, why wouldn't I? Are you on Zillow or Redfin every day looking at the price of your properties? No, I'm indifferent to it. What I care about is income. Perfect. We're on the same page. Yeah. That's kind of the design. So we're all um, kind of bring us to the last point, which this for me might be one of the more interesting parts. It's this idea of if timing is everything, when you buy an investment, where are your milestones? Like when do you start measuring performance? I almost think that goes back to like the purpose of the money where if uh, I'm going to use different account types to make it easy, but if it's a 529 account, I think the purpose is to have enough money to pay for your kid's college. Not did I get a 7% return or an 8% return? Um, I think if the purpose is an IRA and it's for retirement and it's generating enough income and cash flow in retirement for you to live happily ever after, I don't think you're going to look back and say, oh, well, Bob down the street got a 13% return and I had an eight. I screwed up. Um, I, I think that sometimes people get too wrapped up in the numbers that they overthink it. And then maybe they try to make changes or tinker or dabble or they here's a plug for Trevor. They chase shiny objects, which he wrote an article about. And uh, that's when you actually would have been happy with the seven or an eight. And now you're at a four because you, you try to change too many things. So, But here's my question for you. I love the point that you brought up earlier about you got to tell me your holding period first, like how long are you going to hold this, right? Mm-hmm. So tell, um, you're oh, my advi- okay. well, you're my advisor and you've, I've told you long-term holding period, right? And you're like, perfect, appropriate for stuff that's volatile. I've been a client with you for six months and I'm like, Sean, I love you. Just help me to understand why in the world did you buy this emerging markets fund in my portfolio? It's worth less today than when you bought it for me six months ago. What, what's going wrong? I, I just suck. I'm just <laughs> kidding. No, it, you bring up a good point because you almost have to make it really clear in the beginning of conversations that if it is a long-term position, expect volatility. Expect one year, two years, maybe even three years from now, it's worth less than what we invested in. But we truly believe that when you open up your eyes in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's probably going to be one of the better performing investments you own. And you have to believe that because if we know that uh, conceptually, like empirically, emerging markets historically have been more volatile than domestic markets. And we gave a measurement earlier saying that, you know, 15% of the time over the last 50 years in five-year periods, domestic markets were showing negative. Those outcomes are going to happen. I actually like those conversations, especially if they do happen early, because that same person who told me they're comfortable with market volatility, yeah, I've been in the markets for years. I totally understand. Corrections come and go. And then the first six months, they call me about a position that may be down. That's how, I'd rather that happen before the big correction where their whole portfolio is throwing up. You know, it's because then it's more of a risk tolerance issue or uh, expectations issue that at least we can address it now because I don't want every six months to have the same conversation with that person. You know? Yeah, you got a little game film. Yeah. You identified it in practice rather than the finals. And exactly. you're like, I'd rather identify it here. Yeah. Yeah, it, it brings me to... Uh, Another point, you and I have joked around about this, but I, I like this analogy 
because I love basketball. Uh, if if you and I were you know at a Laker game to, together, and at halftime, some guy comes out in his street clothes. Uh, they give him the basketball. They show him the big check. And if he hits the half-court shot, he gets the big check, right? Mm-hmm. Some of those guys are going to hit the half-court shot. Yeah. But does the GM come over and say... You're on the team. Yeah. <laughs> and the real answer is not enough, uh, not a large enough sample size. Right. The person was one for one, right? Uh, now, if he could do it a hundred times in a row, you start thinking, man, maybe there's somebody maybe, I'll talk to. Yeah. So where I think people miss a lot is if timing is everything then you have to choose where you're going to put those mile markers or milestones or or measuring periods. Because if you bought emerging markets and six months later it's misbehaving, as it should be assumed to do, you don't have a large enough sample size to come to a definitive conclusion. And this is what everyone's going to get frustrated with me for saying. But to come to a definitive conclusion, that sample size might be a decade. If we know that probabilities can work out against you in five-year periods and the, the, the more favorable outcomes are in 10-plus years, that's an unfortunate response for me as an advisor that I have to tell you, you have to hit 100 of those uh, half-court shots to even get uh, into a conversation with um, Rob Plinka. That's the hard part is the investment philosophy needs to be uh, like agreed upon and, uh, before you start because to tell someone, hey, you have to wait 10 years to see if we're doing a good job, that, that's not really uh, what some people want to hear. Yeah, so along the way, you can choose benchmarks and, and different things like that to give you context. But uh, yeah, I guess the right way to say it is if some investments really win the beauty contest when they get the longer marination period. One of the things I mentioned in the article, I know it's silly. Like you would never go take a plant an apple seed, uh, you know, an apple seed in your backyard, wake up the next morning expecting to pick an apple. Yeah, you, you laugh at me when I say that. Uh, you would never put a cake in the oven and then one minute later test it and see if it's ready, right? You, you'd laugh at me if I said that. Yet we take long-term investments and then owning them for three months, we start to be really critical of them. Um, when we should have given them the wiggle room to do what they do in the short term, understanding that the outcomes are in the long term. And I mentioned this in the article. Again, I know this is frustrating, but investment returns can be lumpy. And one of the things I said in the article, these might be your returns over five or six years, flat, negative, flat, slightly negative, slightly up, flat, up a lot. And ironically enough, the same thing goes for bonds right now. You know, you may be thinking bonds are your safe money. And then you watch, you know, investment grade bonds go down and you're thinking, hey, I thought you said this can give me a 2% return over time. And it still very may, very well may, but you're going to have to wait for that sample size. Yeah. And that's the thing is that you understand that volatility exists and uh, you can have a shorter leash with, like you said, those investment grade corporate bonds and things like that. But that leash is still not three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want a three-month leash, then you should buy a three-month treasury. Yeah. Uh, and, and the problem is you'll respond, well, I don't like that that rate <laughs> of return. Well, there you go. That's yeah. how we got into this conversation. So those are the four points that uh, were interesting to me and I hope they're interesting to you. This idea that timing is everything and the intersection of investing and timing, we find it at entry points, holding periods, uh, measurement timeframes for performance, and market timing. So I would say digest the article, 
if there's questions that you have, you can email either of us, uh, that is Sean or Trevor. And a really simple email to remember is tom at thebonsagroup.com. That's T-O-M at thebonsagroup.com. We would love to hear your comments and feedback, criticism, um, and even your ideas, uh, conversations you'd like us to have in the future. For now, I will ask that you rate the podcast. Five stars is preferred. All comments are welcome. And then, uh, of course, we'll be back next week with more of our thoughts, thoughts on money. money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.